Well, good evening, church. If you'll open in your Bibles with me to Genesis chapter 6. That's where we will spend the... That range is where we will spend the majority of our time this evening. While you're turning there, I'll share with you. 30 years ago, some of you may have seen this article in People magazine in 1986. Maybe not. But uh, many years ago, People Magazine, um, one of the great moral authorities of American society, uh, decided to do a major story on sin. Okay, can you imagine this being done now? A story on sin. And uh, back in the 80s, it seems that folks were beginning to notice that uh, many of their primetime TV shows centered around sin, crime, and, 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 and things like that. And so, uh, so they did a survey on this. And the goal was to survey people, readers, uh, like Shannon Tipton, and, um, and to see how sinful... I'm glad to see you here tonight, buddy. <laughs> And to see how people uh, viewed sin and how sinful people actually were. So they did the surveys and they, they gave sin scores and, uh, and, and, and put them in order of people's perception. And as you might imagine, sins like murder and rape and uh, child abuse all appeared at the top of the list while smoking and cussing and making illegal cassette recordings. I didn't even know that was bad. <laughs> I, guess, I guess it makes sense. Um, off the radio. Uh, th- now, those were at the bottom of the list. Now, now, there are some oddities, as you might imagine. Cutting in front of someone in line was rated higher than divorce. Uh, illegally parking in a handicapped spot was rated very high, right? And ultimately, the survey concluded that overall, readers said they commit about 4.64 sins per month. sins a month, right? So I think it's safe to say from this authoritative study that humans are not too good at measuring their own sinfulness. The Bible would certainly say so. In fact, if what the Bible says is true, we are way off, all of us, and prone to gross underestimation. Listen to God's assessment of human sinfulness in Genesis chapter 6. I'll start reading in verse 5. In the days of Noah, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, And it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I've created from the face of the land. Man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. For I'm sorry that I've made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Will you pray with me? Father, we pray for a blessing on the preaching and hearing of your word. Let it be received with joy, conviction, 
and let it send us out into our lives with vibrant, passionate obedience. Help us to honor you in all that we say and do tonight. And it's in your name we ask. Amen. Well, we are in a series where we are trying to look at some of the biggest themes of the scriptures. So we're taking a little, you know, a little bit of a break from our normal Wednesday night pattern of looking at one passage of scripture at a time. And one of the reasons we're doing this is because the Bible is not just a collection of individual texts, but it is one big text. It is one unified book with one author, and so we can assume that there will be unify, a unified message. And with a book this big, and with a God this creative and really good at communicating, it shouldn't surprise us that there are themes that are woven throughout the scriptures. And so we have, we're trying to look at some of those themes together. And already we've looked at the story of creation, not just in Genesis, but creation from Genesis to Revelation, and promise, and sacrifice, and love, and last week we began looking at covenant. Now, I introduced the theme of covenant last week, and, and I, I tried to make the point that it is, it is a major theme with a capital T or M or C, whichever word I need to capitalize there to emphasize how important covenant is in the Bible. Because the Bible is organized, I think, in large part by covenants. As I said last week, some say that covenants are the backbone of the Bible. So if we don't understand them, then we don't have a very solid structure. And so we talked about that. Last week we talked about what a covenant is, and I can't rehash all that, but just quickly that it's, it's a relationship where two parties make binding promises to each other. And in many cases, those covenants include particular stipulations, often blessings for obedience, right? This good thing will happen if you keep covenant, and then curses for breaking the covenant, bad things that happen. And then we looked at the covenant of creation. We saw that man was placed in a garden by God where if they were faithful, they would have permanent access to the tree of life and to God himself, the sustainer of life. Yet they broke covenant, and with that they brought down all the covenant curses of death and suffering upon the world that God promised. And tonight, we are going to progress in the storyline to the next major covenant in the Bible. And that is God's covenant with Noah. I'll probably refer to it, I'm trying not to, but I'll probably refer to it as the Noitic covenant, right? Noitic, right? Uh, and that's, we read about this in Genesis 6, 7, 8, and 9, largely. Um, I, I'd planned to go through all the covenants at once, and that just wasn't a good idea. So I'm, I'm, if it's okay, we'll slow down some. Uh, and so we'll look at just the, the Noitic covenant tonight. Now we're going to walk through this covenant in some detail, uh, but I want to start by just giving you the takeaway at the front. There's no need for suspense here. And that is, that is this, that God's covenant with Noah is a covenant of preservation. That's the key word preservation. It's a covenant where God vows to preserve sinful humanity until 
He fulfills all his promises. Preservation. Now, let's remember the context here, right? Because we're saying this takes place in a broader story, and that's the point of the series. <laughs> and so let's think about the context for a moment. Of course, I mean, you can just look over, turn one page. Adam and Eve have just sinned and broken the covenant of at creation. They did this by failing to live up to their role as son, Right? We spent a whole week talking about sonship. Right? Their role as sons. That is, they were created to reflect the image of their father. They, they, they were made in his image. That's what imaging means. But they failed. And so then their son, Cain, showed that he was not like Adam, son of God, but that he was much more like the son of the serpent. 1 John 3 actually says this pretty explicitly. All the way at the end of the New Testament, it says, we should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one when he murdered his brother. That is sonship language, right? And Jesus used this language as well. But Cain was not the only sinner. He was not the only serpent-like human. Genesis 4 and 5 give us a picture of evil that is growing and intensifying and polluting God's good world. We see this particularly in the deeds of Lamech. And Genesis chapter 5 is what some have called the roll call of death, right? It's like, it's like, an, it's like, a, it's like a bad genealogy. Everybody dies, right? It's emphasizing death, death, death. Everyone in the list dies. And then ultimately, this culminates in the verse that I just read for you. When the Lord looks down and sees the wickedness of man, says that it is great and this incredible thing that God regrets making mankind. That's incredible. So God does what a righteous God must do and what he eventually will always do when he's confronted with human sinfulness. He judges. The flood is a massive worldwide demonstration of God's hatred for sin. It is a worldwide demonstration of judgment in which God washes clean the good world that he has made, polluted by mankind. And in fact, it's almost total judgment. And make no mistake, this is, I mean, this is horrifying. This is almost, this is like apocalyptic. God's judgment is horrifying. But once again, the readers of the Bible, who are only six chapters in, are confronted with a God who hates sin and is full of wrath and and brings judgment, but he is also a God who demonstrates grace. We've seen multiple instances of God's grace. One man, one man and his family is singled out for salvation. Now, the text tells us that Noah is spared, not because he was righteous, but because he had faith. We can misread this easily, but because he had faith. So, God instructs Noah to build an ark to preserve not only his family, but also the animals, part of his good creation. And Noah proved his faith. He acted out his faith because true faith always acts. And he obeyed God. And so it is because of faith, even at the beginning of the Bible, that man is saved. 
Isn't that interesting? It establishes a precedent that will be continued all throughout the Bible. God does not save people because they are good. Why? There are no good people. We just read. The intention of man's heart is evil all the time, continually. There are no good men. And so God saves on the basis of faith. But what takes place next is really important, especially for our study. Because the Bible portrays the flood and the events that immediately follow the flood as a new creation. A whole new creation. Another version of Genesis 1 and 2. And they portray Noah as a new Adam. He even is naked later. We'll, We'll get there later. There are a lot of literary links between Noah and Adam and the flood creation or the recreation and, uh, and the narrative there in, verse, in chapters 7 through 10. Um, I'm not going to go through all those. They're fascinating. Uh, but I'll just give you kind of the, the big ones and I think it'll get you there. Um, the first big one is that in both accounts, right, so we're comparing the flood and the, and, the, and the events after with creation. In both accounts, God is bringing order out of watery chaos, right? That's exactly how Genesis 1 begins. Water is gathered, dry land emerges, vegetation springs forth, animals are sent out into the world, seasonal patterns are established connected to the sun, moon, and stars, right? Both accounts, very interesting. But also, just like at creation, Noah is given the same commission that Adam was given, right? Look down at Genesis 9, verse 1. Okay? God said to Noah, this is after the flood, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. My goodness, that sounds familiar. It's like almost word for word for what God told Adam. So we have this failed Adam and a new Adam, and God is continuing this same commission. Man's dominion is reinstated over the animals. Chapter 9, verse 2. And chapter 9 verse 6 reminds us that just like Adam, Noah and all humanity are still made in the image of God. It's very important. Which, Which teaches us that God is willing to preserve sinners. He continues to reflect his image in sinful humanity. But then if you look down at verse 11, chapter 9 verse 11, God says this. I will establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And so here we come to the key feature of God's covenant with Noah, which as as we pointed out last week is really not just a covenant with Noah, but a covenant with Every living thing, right? I don't know what we would call it instead of the Noahic covenant. The, the life, co- I, don't, I don't know. It's with the animals as well. Every living, every living thing. God is never again going to extinguish life in spite of all the wickedness. He's never again going to extinguish life with a flood. It, it's, it's a promise that human life will be preserved. Now, I've said this before, I don't think this applies simply to floods, right? That would not be that comforting. I've said before, God could destroy the world with marshmallows, right? Why is it comforting if, you know, and so I think this would apply to hurricanes and, and tsunamis and, and particularly natural disasters, which, though they still occur, are not total destruction. 
Adam and Eve sinned and God cursed the ground. Right? Thorns came forth and, and the ground is indeed cursed. And God is saying, I, I just I cursed the world with the flood. I cur- cursed the land with the flood. I'm not going to do that again. When all humanity sinned, God cursed the ground. And then he cursed it again with the flood. And now you can see how that poses a problem. If, if man keeps on sinning, how in the world is man going to keep on living? Friends, that is one of the most... That is the most important question of life. If man keeps on sitting, sinning, how can man keep on living? We just take this for granted, don't we? We wake up every day. See, man can't live underwater. And this is where the Noahic covenant comes in and is so important. We can begin by looking at the covenant sign. Right? Not all covenants, but many covenants have a sign which communicates. You see this in verse 12. Chapter 9, verse 12. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you. For all generations, I have set my bow in the cloud. And it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. Now notice, the text does not call this a rainbow. Okay. We have added that on. The text calls this a bow. A rainbow is something my daughters want to paint on the ceiling. A bow is an instrument of war. Right? It's a weapon of wrath. And yet, here we see in this covenant sign, God placing his weapon. He's hanging up in the sky because he is not going to use it. It is, a, it is a visual reminder of God's faithfulness and his covenant promise. God is taking his weapon that he has every right to aim at mankind because the intention of our heart is wicked and evil all the time and he's putting it down. He's hanging it on the wall to look at. It's in the heavens now as an emblem of his grace. And verse 12 makes it clear how long this covenant is to last. It extends, it is ongoing for future generations. Now I think we need to make it clear that this is not salvation. Okay, This is not universal salvation. It does not mean that all are saved. It is universal preservation. Human life will be preserved until God has kept his promise. Now, we could build that out from the rest of the Bible more. But let's just say that God is going to keep this covenant until he has established the promise of Genesis 3.15. God has pledged ongoing mercy until he can keep his promises. You remember Genesis 3.15? Majorly important if you want to understand the Bible. God made a promise to Adam and Eve that he would send a seed. Okay, that is a person. He's going to send a son from the seed of a woman who will come and crush the serpent. Well, if God keeps wiping out all the seeds, then how in the world is he going to fulfill this, right? If God keeps looking down on the wickedness of man's heart, regrets that he makes man, wipes out man, where's the seed going to come from? And who would be left to save? So God makes this gracious promise 
to realize this promise, to create stability. Now, remember last week we talked about two major broad types of covenants in the Bible. Covenants of works and covenants of grace. Which would this be? This is a covenant of grace. God is acting. There are things that Noah and his descendants are supposed to do, but there's no indication of a, of a contingency for failure. Right? There's no indication that if man fails that God will do something different. The covenant is essentially unconditional. It's a covenant that God is staking his name on. It's a covenant of grace. God will do it. God will accomplish it. It's not dependent on human faithfulness because we're not faithful. God will do this. So now do you see why a covenant is needed? Do you see what God is doing when Genesis 6-5 tells us that God looks down on the earth and sees that the wickedness of man is great and all of the intentions, not just our deeds, but our hearts are black and stained and malfunctioning and only evil continually. So God started over. Right? He started over the world. He judged the world and he started over with a new Adam. But the question for us is what difference will it make? Is there, is there, I mean, we have Noah who is righteous by his faith and that's good. I mean, surely that's a good sign. Maybe, maybe Noah is going to be the seed. Maybe Noah will produce the seed that will come and conquer the serpent. Surely there's something different about Noah and his descendants. If you look down at chapter 8, verse 21, we read that God was not under any illusions about the hearts of man. So this is after the flood, referring to Noah and his descendants. When the covenant is made, the text says, The Lord smelled the pleasing aroma of sacrifice. And the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Never again will I strike down every living creature as I have done. Do you see what God understands? Humanity is still sinful. Mankind, this new Adam, his heart is still sinful. Friends, judgment does not change people. Judgment does not change the heart, and it certainly does not save people. In fact, in chapter 8, verse 21, which is after the flood, that actually sounds a whole lot like what God said about man before the flood in chapter 6, verse 5, about our hearts. So I ask again, what's the point of the covenant? Why go through all this? Well, God's covenant to preserve the world it's important to see. It was not grounded on mankind's goodness. It was not because of Noah's goodness or anyone else's goodness. It was because of God's goodness. It was grounded upon God's mercy. The Noahic covenant shows us in early stages that God shows incredible mercy. He is willing to preserve humanity for a time in spite of their sin. And in doing so, God creates, through this covenant, a platform. A platform, a stable platform for the plan of redemption to unfold. Do you see? 
God is providing sinners a measure of stability that we do not deserve. Sin brings decreation, right? Our sin, for every good reason, should bring down the sun and the moon and the stars and the world to stop spinning and the plants to stop producing oxygen that we need. It could very well do that. It is only God's mercy that he continues to provide oxygen. That's it. And don't think it's, the, it's someone else somewhere, in you know, some other place that's brought down that wrath. That's you and me, friends. Are our hearts any different without God's grace? God is temporarily and partially providing a safety net from his wrath so that he can work his larger plan of redemption. And this is... He's providing stability amidst the chaos of sin. In fact, in Genesis chapter 9, if you look down at verse 6, we really get the first taste of human government where God establishes the authority of the sword that humans can punish and should and must punish. Governments should punish those who commit evil, as the Bible explains later. Okay, so what happens to this new Adam? What happens on this new creation? And we don't read anything of a serpent, so maybe things will go well. But Noah and his family had all the same problems as Adam's family. Noah, just like Adam, as soon as he's placed in a garden, he plants a vineyard. And that vineyard produced grapes. And those grapes he turned to wine. That wine he drank, he drank too much. He ends up drunk and naked. His son Ham dishonors his father by viewing his nakedness. And then in 9 verse 22, Ham's son Canaan is cursed because of sin. Do you see this? God makes a new world. Seven verses into it, we have another curse. Two verses in, we have another sin. More cursing. Once again, man is cursed because of sin. What hope is there? Is there any hope for sinners? Is there any way out from underneath this curse? And it doesn't stop there. You know this. The nations that descend from Noah, which we read about in Genesis chapter 10, what do they do? They build a tower. The Tower of Babel, an an ultimate picture of rebellion in the early chapters of the Bible. And Babel is yet another watershed moment. We are 11 chapters into the Bible. We have another watershed moment of human sinfulness. Mankind, feeling pretty good about themselves, right? They decide to build a tower in order to make a name for themselves, in order to release themselves from the need for God. So they build this tower, feel pretty good about themselves. It is described as having its top in the heavens, but apparently it was not that impressive. The text says God had to come down to see it. Oh man, that's that's there on purpose, right? If your tower is so great that God has to walk down to see it, it is not big enough to dethrone God. And once again, God judges mankind, not with the flood, because of his covenant, but he releases a new form of chaos. 
keeping his covenant and not destroying the world. So, in order to summarize, God's covenant with Noah is a covenant with all humanity and it is a covenant of preservation. God is going to allow the humans that he made to enjoy fellowship with him and reflect his image who are utterly sinful, I mean totally broken in the heart, he's going to allow them to live, to continue to borrow his resources, to continue to defile his name, to continue to worship other gods for a time in order that he might redeem. He's going to allow humans to live on a generally stable world, one where the seasons continue in spite of sin until all of his promises are fulfilled and the end of the world comes. Noah is something like a new Adam and a new creation. And even though mankind, including Noah, as we see, the drunk naked guy, is sinful, man is still made in the image of God. And God's intention is still for man to reflect his image and it's still for man to be fruitful and multiply, to spread. And somehow, amazingly, God has a disposition of grace towards these sinners. Somehow, he treats them differently than he did those he destroyed in the flood. And it's because of the covenant with Noah. But this shows us, friends, his wrath is real. It is real. And so God places his bow in the sky to remind us and to signify to us that he has put down his weapon of war for a season until he has accomplished his promised redemption. So what can we learn from this? I mean, what do we take away from this? Obviously, this affects the way you read the whole Bible. The covenant with Noah is still in place. You may have seen a rainbow recently, right? Rainbow is ours first. What can we take away from this? Let me bring up two points. On the one hand, this covenant with Noah teaches us a great deal about how God views sinful humanity. Of God's view of sinful humanity. You and I are indicted in the post-flood account there in Genesis 8.21. The intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Friends, there's a problem in our hearts. We design evil. We craft ways to oppose God. It's how we are bent. We do this naturally. And apart from the sheer grace of God, there is not one single righteous impulse in you. You would have been in those destroyed by the flood. I would have too. There has never been, and unless something drastic happens, will never be a righteous impulse in us. The pre-flood human race and the post-flood human race are both corrupt to the core. And so with that sobering news, we need to marvel, don't we? We need to marvel that God has not wiped us out. I mean, just think about it. God preserved the wickedness of the world long enough for you to be born, to bless you with all sorts of blessings in his general grace, and then to save you. 
Why? Just think, God has so much wrath against your sin, against your pride, against the secret intentions of your heart that he had to make a covenant with himself just to keep from destroying you. Is that what you think about when you see rainbows? Every time you and I see a bow in the sky, it should be a reminder, God should have killed me today. Why didn't he? And we know the answer, don't we, friends? The marvelous grace of God. It is only because of the covenant faithfulness, not of Noah, but of God, that he did not send a flood to wipe out humanity for the 10 million sins that have been committed today. And the Noahic covenant teaches us that this grace is stunning. But this also teaches us about the grace of God. First of all, as we have said, we should marvel at the common grace that God shows to all humanity. To preserve a habitat for human life for master sinners. God does that. And then the life itself. None of us have done anything good to deserve this. And this tells us something fundamentally important about the character of God, doesn't it? That though in the face of human rebellion he has great wrath, he also has great mercy. I can't help think of how God revealed himself to Moses a few chapters later in Exodus chapter 34. Just listen as I read this and how, how much clarity we have after we study Noah's covenant. Exodus 34, the Bible says, The Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed... The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. Do you see how the covenant with Noah captures both of those qualities of God's unified character. The mercy of God is the only way that we can make sense of Noah's ark. The flood sender is also the ark giver. The God who destroyed the whole world in a flood is also the God who delayed his wrath by a hundred and twenty years so that Noah could build the ark. Now we go and we tour it and we marvel at its size. Let's not miss the point. How thankful do you think Noah and his family were when they were floating on that wood? Those precious trees which brought their salvation. And so we see in early seed form that God had a plan for salvation. And somehow... Salvation is going to come through faith. Noah was not saved because he was righteous. He was saved because of his faith. And that, my friends, is a pattern that continues, as we will see next week with Abraham, right? God saved Noah on the basis of his faith. But do we not also see with Noah how much more comprehensive of a salvation is needed? In Genesis, back in Genesis chapter 9, verses 
28 and 29, the Bible says, And after the flood, Noah lived 350 years. And all the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. He died. Where is the ark then? Ultimately, the ark could not save Noah from the curse of sin. More salvation is needed. A better salvation is needed. And praise God, more salvation will come. Centuries after Noah and the flood, God, speaking through the prophet Isaiah, looks back on the covenant with Noah and he uses it to help the people understand the incredible blessings that are coming in the new covenant. I'd like to ask you to turn to Isaiah chapter 54. Isaiah 54 verse 9 and 10. Follow along as I read. This is like the days of Noah to me, as I swore that the waters of Noah should no more go over the earth. So, right, in the same way, I have sworn that I will not be angry with you, and I will not rebuke you. For the mountains may depart, and the hills may be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you, and my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord, who has compassion on you. He's not just talking about water. He's talking about gospel grace. Do you hear what God is doing? He's comparing the new covenant with the covenant that he made with Noah. With Noah, God promised never to flood the earth because of sin. And in the same way, in the new covenant, God promises to never remove his steadfast love with you because of your sin. Do you see? My friends, this is only possible as we will later see and as we already know because of the work of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the promised seed of the woman who resisted the serpent in the wilderness and then crushed his head on the cross. And, if he, and it is only his cross and it's the work that he has done there that accomplished salvation and provides the ark that you and I need to, need to be saved from God's wrath. The cross is the wood that saves us. We must remember that God's promise is while the earth remains. It's not a promise to delay his wrath forever. And so what I'd like to do is I'd like to close tonight by reading a passage from 2 Peter chapter 3. You can turn there if you'd like, but I'm going I'm to read this with no commentary and close. In light of what we've learned about Noah, listen to what is now coming. 2 Peter 3, starting in verse 3. Knowing this, first of all, scoffers will come. Noah was scoffed, wasn't he? Scoffers will come. Scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlooked this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. 
And that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord... One day is, a, is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But know this, the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth... And the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be? In lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to this promise... We are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Father, we thank you that because of Christ, we will be in that safe place. Help us to understand what sort of people we ought to be in light of your grace and in light of what is coming. We ask this in your name. Amen.